Father God, thank you for speaking. When we open your word, we're reading the words of men and women who have written, the biblical authors, yes, but we are reading your words, the creator God who has spoken to us. And so we are expectant this morning that your words will penetrate our hearts, change us, transform us in the name of Jesus this morning. We pray this. Uh, amen. 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 The book of Habakkuk was written by the prophet Habakkuk sometime between 610 and 605 BC. Unlike other prophetic books, which warn and accuse Israel, Habakkuk offers a view into the prophet's own personal struggles, dealing with the pain caused by Judah's wickedness. Amidst the rampant violence and corruption of Judah, Habakkuk struggles to see how God can be good. He cries out for an explanation, and God answers, promising the sin of Judah will be judged and dealt with by the force of Babylon. Confused, Habakkuk suggests that Babylon is far more corrupt than Judah, surely deserving a harsher judgment. God reminds Habakkuk that he holds every nation accountable for their actions, Babylon being no different. He will allow their propensity toward revenge and violence to bring judgment upon themselves. Habakkuk expresses his fear of Judah's coming trials, but rejoices in the chance to trust the Lord's sovereignty, even in such perilous times. I firmly believe that every good sermon has at least one reference to the Lord of the Rings, so <laughs> this week I thought I would get it out of the way early. Uh, in the Return of the King movie, Gandalf and the Hobbit Pippin are looking out at a field where a massive battle is about to occur. And Pippin says, I don't want to be in a battle, but waiting on the edge of one that I can't escape is even worse. And that line captures the fear and dread when you know something terrible is about to happen. And that is exactly the situation of the prophet Habakkuk, who was one of the last prophets who ministered before the people of Judah would be conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Habakkuk lived in the final days before that invasion, which led to the utter destruction of the nation and exile and slavery for most of its people. The threat was on the horizon. The writing was on the wall. Exile is coming. And Habakkuk was hoping that his people would change and repent and turn back to the Lord. But he looks and sees all this happening, and he sees that Judah is still full of the corruption and injustice and idolatry that prophets like Micah and Zephaniah preached against. And it's not changing. It's going to happen. But unlike those prophets, Habakkuk didn't prophesy against the people of Judah. He turned his attention to God himself. And he asked God, why, Lord, how long will this evil against your people or among your people last? How long are my people going to turn against you, Lord? And surprisingly, God answers. So the first couple of chapters of Habakkuk are this kind of back and forth between the prophet and God. So God says to Habakkuk, don't worry, don't worry. I am going to judge the wickedness of Judah through the pagan army of Babylon. And Habakkuk is like, great. Wait, what? Sorry, Babylon? They're even worse than us. 
You're going to use an unjust nation to correct injustice? How does that work? Do two wrongs make a right? He even says to God in chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watch post, and I will wait for God to answer my complaint. So he's pretty bold. And so God comes back another time, and he gives Habakkuk this reassurance. Babylon will be judged too. In time, I will deal with all evil. I'll put an end to it. You don't need to know how this is all going to work out. And then here comes the key line. It's in chapter 2. But the righteous shall live by faith. In a moment, we're going to talk more about faith, and we'll see how Habakkuk responds to this answer. But, but first, I want to ask you this question. How do you automatically respond in times of difficulty or calamity? Now, to be sure, the specific situation of Judah and Babylon is a key moment in biblical history, but one of the major themes of this book is how anyone living at any time should live in the midst of what Habakkuk calls the day of trouble. How do you respond when the day of trouble comes upon you? What does it look like to trust God when your world is turned upside down by a cancer diagnosis? When someone you love is killed in a car accident, when you lose your job, when your marriage is failing, how do we respond in the day of trouble? There's lots of unhelpful ways to do so. Some of us lose hope instantly. We immediately fall into despair, not able to see past our own grief and anxiety. Some of us grow bitter towards God, like Job's wife, just curse God and die. Some of us grit our teeth and we rely on our own strength. Okay, times are tough, but I can get through this. Tough it out. Some of us find refuge in the things of the world, be it distracting yourself with work or medicating the pain with alcohol or entertainment. Some of us take out our emotions on those around us. We just lash out in our hurt. And most of the times, we we don't do these things consciously. They're instinctive coping methods. But what if there was a better way? What if we could learn from someone who's older and wiser, who has wrestled with these things and then passed his wisdom on to us? That is the prophet Habakkuk. And when we find it difficult to trust God in the darkest moments of our stories, we are invited to sit and listen to his words. So specifically, we are going to look at the third chapter of Habakkuk to see how he answers this question that I have up on the screen. It's still a relevant question for us today. What does it look like to live by faith in the day of trouble? What does it look like to live by faith in the day of trouble? So we're going to walk through Habakkuk 3 to get an answer to that question. This chapter divides into two different parts. Verses 2 to 15 describe the past story of faith. Verses 16 and 19 describe the present practice of faith. But before we dive into the chapter itself, I want to spend a few minutes talking about that word, faith. What what does that word actually mean? So we're going to take a little tangent and then circle back here just so we can nail down what is faith in the Bible. I said earlier that the key verse of the whole book of Habakkuk is in chapter 2, verse 4. But the righteous shall live by his faith. 
And this verse gets picked up by the Apostle Paul, the author to the letter of the Hebrews, and it sounds very inspiring, definitely coffee cup material. The righteous shall live by faith. And you go, all right, that is in the pantheon of great verses about faith. Lovely. But the various biblical words for faith, which include the Hebrew word emet, they appear over 750 times throughout the Bible. And so it won't help us at all if we don't understand what faith is. What, what does that mean? I've put on the screen three common misconceptions about faith. So see if you've heard any of these before, or even if you just automatically kind of think of faith in this way. First, faith in the Bible is not unfounded belief. Sometimes modern notions of trust or faith involve belief in something despite the evidence. This often comes up in the science versus faith conversations. You, know, you have science that has the evidence, and then you have faith, and that's just blind trust. It's a leap of faith. Follow your heart. You might even think of Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But the faith being described here isn't blind. Biblical faith is always connected to the evidence of a person's faithfulness. So in other words, if God is worthy of our trust, it doesn't matter if we can see him with our eyes. We know that he is faithful. We do have evidence. It's not just a heart thing. Second misconception, faith is not merely cognitive or intellectual belief, like a, a set of beliefs in your mind. Yes, this is what I believe. Uh, as we've said, faith includes our minds and evidence and reasoning, but the Apostle James talks about even the demons believing in God. They know he exists. And Paul writes about something called the obedience of faith. So faith is not just affirming something in your brain. Yes, I have faith because I check all the boxes on what I believe. Faith is also feeling that heart and having it flow out as you live it out in your actions. Which leads to the third misconception, that faith is passive belief. It's just an inward thing, a state of mind, and it doesn't really affect how I live. I have my faith, and then I have what I actually do. But what we will see in the prophet Habakkuk is that faith involves an embodied, whole-person trust that commits to God despite any obstacles. So on the next slide, I have my summary here of biblical faith. Faith is whole person allegiance to the faithful God. And notice, too, in this whole conversation, uh, I'm not only talking about faith as it relates to salvation. The Apostle Paul used Habakkuk 2.4 in that way. He wrote that the righteous, that is the one who is made righteous by the blood and resurrection of Jesus, will live or have eternal life by faith in the Savior. And that is faith. But in the Bible, faith is so much more than the moment of conversion. Faith is a way of life. The righteous shall live their whole lives by faith, by whole person allegiance to the faithful God. So living by faith comes from knowing the character of God who always keeps his promises and delivers his people. To put it another way, Faith depends on the person you put your faith in. If you have a small God, your faith will be small. 
But if you study the God of the Bible and your categories for who God is get blown up, if you read about the God who is sovereign over everything and yet intimate and near to his people, the God of holiness and love, the God of wrath and mercy, the God of justice and kindness, if your faith involves belief in your mind, trust in your heart, and loyalty in your actions— then we're beginning to get to the meaning of Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. So now that we have that idea of what it means to live by faith, we're going to turn to Habakkuk chapter 3, which is in many ways an illustration of what it looks like to live by faith in the day of trouble. So we're going to start reading in verse 1 in chapter 3 of Habakkuk. Would you turn there with me? This is the past story of faith. So starting in verse 1 here, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Everybody clear on that point? Awesome. Good. No, we're going to come back to that in a bit. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk is praying, and he's writing down his prayer for us to see. His prayer is basically this, I've read about you, God. I know all the Bible stories that I learned in Sunday school. Right now, in my years, do those miraculous things again. Revive them. Show wrath on evil, but also remember to show mercy to your people. Uh, Some of you grew up in the Christian church. That was my story. If that's your story as well, for many of you, your childhood was filled with the stories of the Bible. You've got David and Goliath, Jacob and Esau, and especially all the Bible stories that have animals in them, because those are great for kids, like uh, Noah's Ark, the fun story of God's judgment. And also there were giraffes, you know. (laughs) But if you're like me, you might have felt as you grow up that these stories aren't it all connected to your real life or even to your relationship with God? Habakkuk prays, make these stories of your judgment on evil, your miracles of salvation, make those stories come alive again right now in my lifetime. And then he launches into dense Hebrew poetry that describes some of these different stories. So I'm going to read verses 3 to 15, just a solid block of poetry here. And what I want you to do while I read is to see if you can identify which stories in the Old Testament that Habakkuk is referencing. Most of them are from the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Uh, and it's, there's no shame at all if while I'm reading these verses, you're just kind of blown away and you glassy-eyed and you're just like, I have no idea. I'm utterly confused here. That is totally fine. So let's dive in. I'm going to read verses 3 to 15 here. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. Oh, I also should have mentioned, I've got some hints on the screen with pictures of maybe what I think some of these stories are. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. 
The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glistening spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters." And by this point, some of you are like, I am so done with biblical poetry. It is not my thing. And that is totally fine. I, I admit that I'm still growing in my understanding of these verses. They're, they're complicated and there's a lot going on there. But here are two big ideas that I think we can take away from this part of Habakkuk 3. First, Habakkuk is filled with awe at the power of God. A God who is both warrior and deliverer. Now you have to remember Habakkuk's context. He is looking at the armies of Babylon. He's hearing rumors every day of this town, this city, this nation that Babylon has just conquered. And next in its target is Judah. So Habakkuk is looking at their spears, their arrows, their chariots, their armor. This is the largest empire in world history so far. But then he looked at God, whose splendor covers the heavens, who can split mountains, who can shake an entire nation like a maraca, whose weapons are light itself, who wields cosmic power in the face of overwhelming threats and real physical danger. Habakkuk finds refuge and comfort in the strength and the power of the creator God. It's like David prays in Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Many are my foes. Many are my enemies. I feel surrounded. There's no escape. But there's one on my side, and that is enough, and that's the creator God. While our enemies and challenges and suffering looms large over us in the moment, Habakkuk demonstrates how to step back and get a bigger perspective of things by remembering the awesome, frightening power of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But Habakkuk doesn't just remember God's power in abstract. Yes, God, I know you're powerful. He retells the stories of God's past faithfulness in order to apply them to the present. So did you catch some of the stories that he's referencing? 
Uh, I got God descending on Mount Sinai with thunder and flame, God putting plagues on the people of Egypt to change Pharaoh's heart, God breaking apart the Red Sea to bring his people to the promised land, God stopping the sun and the moon to help Israel win a battle. There's probably more that I missed. He doesn't name them specifically, but there's these subtle references, and if you want to break it down and say, I don't get anything from this, let's get coffee or tea and we can ponder and puzzle over these verses together. These Sunday school stories were for Habakkuk real, tangible evidence for faith. With Babylon approaching, Habakkuk opens his Bible and he points to it and he says, this is how I know that God will be faithful today and tomorrow and the next day after that because he's already proven himself time after time again. John Butler put it this way, prophecy is primarily to confirm future generations of the truth of God. So the memory, the retelling of the story is an announcement of God's consistency. He saved us in the past. He'll do it again because that's who he is. So the main question we asked at the beginning was this. How, what does it look like to live by faith in the day of trouble? So from verses 2 to 15, we get one answer. We remember the days in which God proved most faithful. And this means to do what Habakkuk did, to read the stories of God's deeds in the past and then pray, Lord, revive those miracles today. I saw what you did back then. Can we get a taste of that now? In this present time, we still need your miracles now. But it also means to look at your own life and the lives of people around you and to recall the specific times in which God worked in your life in a powerful way that is worth remembering. If you can, even the specific dates can be a testimony. On February 22nd, 1997, Jesus saved me from my sins when I was in the rocking chair with my mom. My parents wrote down the day, the first day that I asked, can I become a Christian? I want to go to heaven. I want to follow Jesus. On October 6th, 2011, I was at the lowest point in my life. I was deep in depression And just in that moment, in a unique way, the Lord filled me with a sense of his fatherly love for me. I remember that day. And for other times in my life, I don't have the actual dates, but I have the stories. When Melissa and I were going to go to seminary and money was really tight, and then out of nowhere, our friends just dropped $3,000 in our lap to help us get started. We have these stories, and so do you. You have them as well. I've heard some of them. Uh, uh, We have a record at Rock Hill of God's faithfulness and mercy and protection. And in fact, in two weeks, we're going to be celebrating Rock Hill's 15th anniversary as a church. So in the service, we're going to look at the past and hear some stories of God's faithfulness. And then we're going to say, okay, so how do we trust him in the future? Whatever happens in the future of our church. Think of it this way. We keep anniversaries for birthdays for weddings, for funerals or deaths. But the life of faith can also keep anniversaries of God's work. And then, and then pass down those stories in your family, in your city group, with your friends. Pass down these stories of the times when God showed up. For those of you who have walked with God for years, for decades, those stories are some of the greatest treasures 
that you can use to encourage your brothers and sisters in this room. And, and what this can do for your faith is to shore up the foundation so no matter what the earthquake is, you know deep in your bones that the rock beneath you is solid. It's Abraham leading his son Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him because God told him to. And Isaac along the way says, Father, where's the sacrifice? I don't see it. And Abraham says, my son, I don't know where this is going, but the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. That's the prayer of faith. Lord, I I can't see the future, but I know you. Because of the past, I will trust you with the present and with the future. Or as the hymn writer said, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. So that's the past stories of faith. But then Habakkuk turns to the present practice of faith in verses 16 to 19. Let me read them for you. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places." So Habakkuk knows that Babylon will come, that the day of trouble is approaching, and it fills him with dread. Did you notice that in verse 16? I hear my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Does this sound like somebody who is living by faith? Because it is. Living by faith does not mean that you are never afraid, never worried, never weak in the knees because of the terrible weight of suffering. Living by faith is wrestling and resting. Wrestling with the sorrow and the grief and the pain and resting in the promises of God. Habakkuk continues and he finishes his thought, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. What a remarkable statement. The day of trouble is coming on me. We're about to be invaded and taken into exile. I might be a slave for the rest of my life. I might be killed when Babylon first comes in. But instead of kicking and screaming, instead of fighting or fleeing, I will wait for God to bring justice. And then Habakkuk takes it even one step further as he begins to describe the total disintegration and desolation of all of life itself. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. He's describing nothing less than the loss of every single thing that we think will provide for us. 
This was written in an agrarian society, so we might put it in modern terms. If I lose my job unexpectedly and the unemployment benefits never come through, if the car breaks down and it never runs again, if the foundation of my house sinks into the ground, if my lifelong career gets cut off and I can't find any more work in my field, if I lose funding for higher education and I can't get my degree, if I get injured and I never earn another paycheck for the rest of my life, if there's a food shortage, an energy shortage, a housing shortage, if inflation rises 400%, if a storm washes everything I own into Lake Superior, if war breaks out and I become a refugee, if the unthinkable happens, where do I turn? Where did Habakkuk turn? Look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now this response from Habakkuk might be surprising for you, especially if you are reading this verse through the lens that what he means by joy means a good mood or a happy feeling. Is, is Habakkuk saying all this terrible stuff is happening, but turn that smile upside down. We've got God, yes, awesome. I'm, can you see how joyful I am right now? Is that what it is? No. Biblical joy is not suppressing your sorrow. We've just seen that. Joy, rather, is an attitude that God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but actually the opposite. Because in the dark circumstances, we have hope in God's love for us, his promise for us, his faithfulness to us. Joy is the decision that God will have the final word, not my suffering. Joy is a choice to say my life is not defined or determined by my struggles, but by my future destiny, which is found in the strong deliverance of God. And that's where he goes in Verse 19, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places when I feel weak in the day of trouble, when it cripples me, when I am crushed, when I'm brought down to my knees. I fall into the strength of the Lord. When I feel my feet slipping out from underneath me, I know that God will catch me and put me on firm ground. This is a calm, settled place of certainty. It's trembling and yet trusting, and that is faith. And so we come back to our main question. What does it look like to live by faith in the day of trouble? First, we remember the days in which God proved most faithful, and then second, from Habakkuk 16 and 19, we also trust with joy that endures despite our circumstances. But how do we do that? How do we choose joy? We get one hint of how to do so, both at the beginning and at the end of this chapter in Habakkuk 3. So remember verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Remember that? Yeah. So most scholars believe that Shigianoth was a word that either describes an instrument that we've just lost in time, or it's a pattern of music, like 4-4 four, four time in music. And then look down at the last line of the book. This is the very last thing in the book of Habakkuk, verse 19. To the choir master with stringed instruments. And suddenly we discover that all that we've been reading, Habakkuk 3, is a worship song. 
This one is for the songwriters and the musicians among us. Habakkuk the prophet is one of the only prophets who turned his conversations with God, his prayers into songs for the people of God to sing when they are in the day of trouble. One of my favorite parts of this time of the week, the Sunday morning gathering, is singing alongside people whom I know are going through a great season of life and singing alongside the people who I know have had the worst week of their lives. And you look around the room, and if you know some of these stories, they are present. The church is the place where broken people sing, where both the poor and the rich shout out, Lord, I need you every hour I need you, where the mourners sing, it is well with my soul, where sinners, great and small, sing amazing grace. There's a reason why two of the most common commands in the scriptures are fear not and sing. Music has a power to help us proclaim what we might not feel. Music has a power to help us practice and exercise and choose joy despite our circumstances. And so singing, even singing songs of grief and lament is one biblical way to choose joy in declaring in song that God is faithful. But there's a catch here. What happens when our faith fails? Not if, but what happens when the day of trouble is too much for us? No amount of music will change that. What happens when remembering the stories of God's past faithfulness isn't enough and our faith is still crumbling? This is where we turn to the good news of the gospel, where we are saved not by the strength of our faith, but on the strong faithfulness of our God. See, the cross of Jesus, the day when he bled and died for your sins and your rebellion against God, that is the ultimate day in which God proved most faithful. On that day, God gave his life for you. But even in that darkest day of trouble, God demonstrates that he can turn any day of trouble into good. He can turn, if he can turn that into good, he can turn any day that you experience into good. In the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11, the author lists out all these examples of faith in the Old Testament. He says Moses and Abraham and Rahab, and he goes through. But he ends the list by saying that they trusted in God without seeing the ultimate evidence for God's faithfulness, which is the cross. And then he writes this in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you catch the word faith in there? Jesus is the founder, the originator, the beginning of our faith. And Jesus is the perfecter, the completer, the finisher of our faith. Your faith begins and ends with Jesus which means that your salvation in your life does not depend on your ability to keep holding on to trust. It can't. 
The gospel says it all depends on his faithfulness for us. Yes, I believe. But like the father in Mark 9, yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. And we are held by the faithfulness of God. And then, because we can live a life of faith without the burden of performance or perfection, we can run with endurance, even in the day of trouble. We can remember the days in which God proved most faithful, especially the day that he died for you, and then three days later, the day that he rose for you. And we can trust with joy, we can sing out despite our circumstances, because Jesus went to the cross with joy in his heart out of his great, great deep love for you. We've come at the end of Habakkuk to the end of the pre-exilic books. And when we pick it up in the new year, we'll return to the prophet Jeremiah who lived when the dam broke, when Babylon actually came and exile began. And then we see the fallout from that and the prophets who come and it's one of the biggest events in the Old Testament, the exile. I don't want to minimize its impact. This was a massive turning point in the biblical story. And we'll see how the prophets called people to faithfulness even when the worst happens. It's appropriate that this is the first day of the Advent season. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. So Advent is the season where the exile is broadened and expanded, and we see that really all human beings are in exile, distant from God, and what we need is a Savior to come and ransom us, and he did, and that's what Christmas is about. I want to close with a vivid example of what it looks like to live by faith in dark times. I've got a picture up here. This picture is from Ukraine. It's from a place that was recently liberated from Russia. And this was a torture chamber. You might see writing on the walls there. That's where a prisoner of war, we don't know their name, we don't know if they survived, they scratched the Lord's prayer on the wall of their torture chamber. And this picture has been resonating in my heart for the last couple of weeks because our pastors often talk uh, with each other about how we want to prepare you for the good days. Yes, we want to prepare you for the times of plenty, but much more than that, we want to prepare you for the darkest days. If all your life crumbled like Job, if you lost everything, where would you turn and as your pastor, my prayer is that you would turn to where this brother or sister turned in their darkest day, a day that most of us can't even imagine, praying and crying out to God our Father in heaven, hallowed is his name, deliver us from evil. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let me pray for God's help for us. Father God, you were faithful in the past. Revive your faithfulness today to us in this room. 
for those of us who are in this room and we are feeling stretched and broken, crushed, downtrodden, thank you for being a God who is near to the brokenhearted. For those of us who are thriving and flourishing, praise be to you. Let us not forget you. Let us always trust and rely on your faithfulness rather than our own strength. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for coming and living among us, dwelling among your people. We long for you to return someday and see you face to face. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.